Well, good afternoon. Uh, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the ministers here. And before we get started and look at a little snippet from Philippians, I'll uh, pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you now that in this time ahead, we can look to your word. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. Help us to see that your son, Jesus, is worth it in living and in dying. Uh, Please lift our hearts and our minds to you now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you noticed that people have this tendency, this inclination, we're kind of almost wired to avoid death? New Year's resolutions, right? Generally, when we make them, they have some sort of healthy living aspect to it. No one really resolves to go all year. I'm going to ride my motorbike without a helmet. Or I'm going to smoke an extra packet of cigarettes every week. Or I'm going to eat more KFC. Like, we humans, for some reason or another, we want to... (laughs) The KFC one hurt, I'm sorry. Uh, We humans, we want to live and live longer if possible. This guy, Ricky McGee, in January 2006... He got lost and stranded in the outback about 500 kilometres southwest of Catherine in the Northern Territory. He managed to walk through the desert for 71 days. He lived off leeches and snakes and lizards and frogs. During this time, before cattle farmers found him, he went from being 105 kilograms to 48. He was determined to live. This other guy, you may have seen the movie, Aaron Rawlson, in April 2003, he went hiking and climbing in Utah and didn't tell anyone. As he was descending down a canyon, a boulder got dislodged and crushed his hand between the wall. He was there for six days until he decided to chop off his own hand with a terribly small knife so he could then climb down and get rescued. He wrote a book called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Uh, And that became a movie called 127 Hours. People do remarkable things to avoid death. But what do we actually live for? The movie Train Sporting, it tells us to choose life. Choose a job, choose a career, choose a family, choose a big television, choose washing machines, cars, compact dish players, and electrical tin openers. Choose good health, low cholesterol, and dental insurance. Choose fixed interest mortgage repayments. Choose a starter home. Choose your friends. Choose sitting on the couch, watching mind-numbing, spirit-crushing game shows, stuffing junk food into your mouth. Is that life? What is it that we live for? It's one thing to stay alive, It's another thing to live and to die for something. William Wallace from Braveheart, he would have us die for something. They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. In the state of New Hampshire, their motto that's printed on their license plate is live free or die. 
Is freedom the answer that we are to live and die for? Paul answers this deep existential question from prison of all places, not in a place of freedom or luxury. He is one of the happiest men alive and he is potentially facing death. He says living is about serving Christ and dying is about being with Christ. Live or die, it's about Jesus. Paul wrote this in prison, tied to a Roman guard. So we'll back up a little bit and look at the context of this letter and to see how we get to Paul's crazy line about how for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul was once named Saul and he hated Christians. He was a devout Jew who thought Christians were ruining everything with all their talk about this Messiah who has come. So he went about destroying their plans. However, Jesus shows up, knocks him off his horse and blinds him for three days. This in effect took away Saul's blind faith and now he didn't have a choice. He had to believe in the resurrected Jesus because he'd met him. So Saul changes his name to Paul and he changes teams. He becomes a Christian and starts telling the Jews that the Messiah has actually come. He's met him. And Paul takes his message on the road. And in one city he visits with Silas and Timothy is Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was founded by veteran Roman soldiers and they made a city in the likeness of Rome. Living here meant that people didn't have to pay taxes to Rome uh, and they received the same privileges as a Roman citizen. The buildings were like Rome. The people dressed as if they were in Rome. Uh, they had uh, Roman laws. They used the Latin language and pretty much they wanted to be a mini Rome. So if someone said Jesus was Lord or King in Philippi, it was dangerous as it was saying that the Roman Caesar wasn't lord or king. And that is exactly what Paul and Silas do in Acts 19. You can read about that. They get chucked in prison for saying it. But it's interesting to note that the first members of this church in Philippi was a rich religious woman in the fashion industry, a slave girl who was possessed by a demon, and a gruff Roman prison guard. And it's possible that these three people were still at the church when Paul was writing to them. So if you fast forward 10 or so years, Paul now writes this letter as a kind of thank you letter. He wasn't responding to some messed up situation like in some letters he writes to other churches. This isn't like the letter to the church in Rome to people who he hasn't met. This was written to his friends in another town who still cared for him. Paul was in prison awaiting trial, which may lead to his freedom or to his death. Back then, the government didn't think they needed to look after their own prisoners, so you needed outside help to stay alive. The Philippians heard that Paul was in prison, so they sent their man, Epaphroditus, with probably a few others, to bring Paul some food and money so that he wouldn't starve. This wasn't the first time the Philippians had looked after Paul. In chapter 4, we read that the Philippians have done this to Paul in two other towns. It's pretty clear the Philippians liked Paul. He was like their link missionary. 
But what happened this time around was that their gift-giving guy, Epaphroditus, he got sick, like really sick and nearly died. Paul writes this letter to send back to the Philippians to let them know that their man is now okay and to say thanks for their provisions. But because this is Paul, he can't just write a little quick thank you note. He was encouraged by the Philippians, so he writes back to encourage them. And of course, the best thing to write about is Jesus. So Paul writes to encourage them to press on with Jesus, telling them to live differently. This might have been especially hard in a city trying to live like Rome. Instead of being a mini Rome, Paul tells them to be a mini Jesus. This would have made them stand out a bit. It may have made things hard for them, especially if they said that Jesus was king. But living like a Christian is hard in all times and cultures, as all times and cultures have their own way of thinking and doing things. And as Christians, we've been called to live differently for Christ. Christianity is an alternative lifestyle. It's countercultural. We are not to conform to the patterns of this world, but instead we are to be living sacrifices to God. When I was a youth minister here, I would always tell the teens that Christianity is punk. It's a quiet rebellion against society. If you want to be a rebel in society, don't just do what everyone else is doing. In Philippi, don't be a mini Rome. Here it might be, don't keep consuming things and people for your own pleasure. Stop being worried, worried about wars and interest rates. Don't try and find meaning and purpose within you. If you really want to be a rebel, be a Christian. Stay a virgin till your wedding night. Stop worrying about the next world disaster. Don't put your hope that the government is going to solve all your problems. Stay sober and read your Bible every day. Everything else is overdone and overrated. So we get to Paul. And you'd think that he'd be a bit upset about being in prison. He might be a little miffed, a little put out. But instead he has joy. Not because he's trapped in jail and waiting a trial that may mean he loses his life, but because the gospel is being preached inside and outside the prison. This trumps everything. For Paul, he lives for Christ and to make him known. So he's happy, so he rejoices. He's in prison, chained to a smelly Roman guard, and yet he is still upbeat. He's not writing some, dear diary, this is the worst day ever emo entry. He isn't posting on Facebook how terrible his day is going. Paul rejoices, not because bad things have happened to him, but because in these moments, he can still see the gospel going forward. He has the art of seeing God's purposes worked out through difficulties. So Paul, in verses 19 to 26, turns his attention directly to his situation and addresses the fact that he may die soon. The powers of the world want Paul dead, and in some way he's actually okay with that. Paul thinks he would be better off dead, although for a whole series of different reasons. We'll look at this starting from verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, 
but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul asks for their prayers and hopes that at this time, like all the times in the past, he would live in a way that would give glory to God. He asks for courage to face the trials and the outcome of that trial. Whether by life or by death, he hopes that he will not be ashamed of Christ, but instead Jesus will be exalted in his body. In his body, I take to mean in a physical, not spiritual sense, that he hopes in a real visible way he'll be able to show how good Jesus is, if he is to go on living or if he is to lose his head. Paul hopes he will not show in any way that he is ashamed of Christ, either to live or to die. And Paul actually goes on to explain why he thinks Jesus is worth living and dying for. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. Paul is feeling a tension between eternal salvation and temporary freedom. He faces this predicament or decision to choose one way or the other. On one hand, Paul, if Paul does die, he will get to be with Jesus. On the other hand, if Paul does live, uh, he will continue to advance Jesus' kingdom by whatever means he can. Since Paul's life is so wrapped up in Jesus, he's quite happy about whatever will come from his trial. Whether he lives or dies, Jesus is sovereign over all. If Paul does die, he gets to see Jesus face to face, which in his own words is far better. However, do you see Paul at where he lands on this predicament? He actually does make up his mind. Paul chooses the least favorable option to him for the sake of others. Paul chooses life, not for himself, but for others. Instead of throwing in the towel and saying he's had enough, it's off to see Jesus now, Paul thinks that while he is still here, he can be of an assistance to others to increase their joy and increase their faith. Paul is doing exactly what he says to do in the next chapter. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul puts others before his own wants and desires. And this is why we don't just end ourselves once we become Christians. I mean, sure, once we're saved, we, when we die, we get to go to be with God forever, right? But we don't just end it then and there. We have a mission. 
Becoming a Christian isn't just about future eternal fire insurance for ourselves and not about anyone else. We're to press on so that others can come to faith and their joy can be increased. Once you are saved, the model here is that our lives are not our own. Jesus is our new king and we are to go about his business in bringing all things under his reign. We are to be other person-centered, even if it means doing the least favorable option. This is true sacrifice. This is love. This is the example we have in Jesus. And this could bring joy, even when things are hard. So what is your life about? When push comes to shove, if everything has been taken away from you, where would you turn to? What are you fundamentally about? Can people tell by your life if you are ashamed of Jesus or not? Are you living for yourself or for God and others? Do you live differently? King David, he had many ups and downs in his life. He had people trying to assassinate them. Uh, he'd fought many wars. He'd seen much death. And he got through his ordeals with his eyes fixed on God. As we read in Psalm 16, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. And I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And he goes on. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Whether David lives or dies, he looks to God and will not be shaken. He knows even in death he will not be abandoned. God makes known the path of life and that fills him with joy. Can you speak like David in that psalm? I hope you can because there is much reason to do so. Our God is a great creative artist. He made all of the sunsets over mountains on a partly cloudy day. He made all of the beaches and the coastal lines, all of the elements that we have on this earth and our own creative minds to produce things like Wi-Fi and music and hamburgers. The life that we have comes from him and all the pleasures we have, the senses of smell and touch and taste have been created by him. And God isn't an absent, impersonal artist who isn't involved in his creation. He is personal and he cares for us. He who made the stars in the Southern Cross millions of light years away also made the taste receptors on your tongue. Not only did he create all these pleasures, he also rescued us from ourselves. God came and became one of us. He emptied himself to become a human and he humbled himself to save us 
He took on our wrongdoings and submitted to the punishment that we deserved. He suffered death for us on a cross and then rose again, victorious. And now we can have his righteousness. We can have a new life, a fresh start with him. And he will take us back home with him one day. Death is not final for us. There is life after death, and it is with him. And this changes us. It changes who we are and what we value in life. For God has intervened. How can we not have joy, even in hard circumstances? God is a completer finisher. He will finish the work started in your life and will continue it past death. The Christian hope is that all who die in Christ will again rise again and be with other saints and Christ celebrating his victory for us. Does that certain hope for the future fuel your living today? Paul had great confidence and trust that in both living and dying, Christ was worth it even in prison, even facing death. This Christian punk ska band Five Iron Frenzy in the early 2000s wrote this song and this verse struck me yesterday in the car. All my dreams are slowly dying. I can count my years in scars. The only one that's never left me has carried me so very far. I've heard it said that he wastes nothing so beautiful to behold. The author of my hope is writing the greatest story ever told. Jesus is worth it. He is worth it in the ups and in the downs, in the hardships and in the ease. God is trustworthy and worth following. For he has bounded himself to us humans through his promises and through his death. Those in Christ are changed so they can be content in all things, in plenty and in want. Because we have Christ. All other titles and accolades are rubbish. At the start of this year, How might your hope in Jesus fuel your living in 2024? At the start of 2009, I think it was the first week, I read a chapter of J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. It was his chapter on assurance. And this bit, it stood out to me. Many appear to think that once converted, they have little more to attend to and that a state of salvation is kind of easy chair in which they may just sit still, lie back, and be happy. They seem to fancy that grace is given them that they may enjoy it, and they forget that it is given like a talent to be used, employed, and improved. I believe it ought to be our continual aim and desire to go forward, and our watchword on every returning birthday and at the beginning of every year should be more and more. More knowledge, more faith, more obedience, more love. The will of the Lord is our sanctification and it ought to be our will too. This phrase, more and more, had a real impact on my thinking that year. Throughout 2009, I was thinking, 
how might I love and serve God more and more? And I didn't plan it this way. As it turns out, in the middle of this year, that is when I started my theological degree with no intention of going into the ministry. Now, that might not be the right course for you this year, but what actions could you do as you love God more and more? As we start this new year and think about what we were doing, what commitments will we take up, what are we trying to squeeze into our timetable this year, how does living for Christ impact your plans? Do you live in a way that is looking forward to seeing Jesus? Who might you meet with once a fortnight, once a month, to intentionally read the Bible and to encourage them in their faith? Can your family adopt someone else at church, someone who is older or someone who is younger or a single person? What friendships could you form in this church to help build and encourage someone else up in the faith? Does your hope for the future affect how you live today? Could someone tell by how you live that you are joyful, confident in the power of prayer, and that you're not ashamed of Christ, that your labors, that you labor for others to know Jesus. Philippians has a bunch of coffee mug verses. Maybe this year you could adopt. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul gladly saw his whole life through the lens and purpose of the gospel. I hope that this year you too can see your life through that lens. So you can say, regardless of circumstances, whatever's going to come this year, you can say, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great intervention you did for us in sending your son, Jesus, Thank you that you have saved us and that we have this hope that you will not abandon us to the grave. I pray, Lord, that we will be so enamored by this great news that we will live for you and be confident in death and know that in our living and in our dying, it is for you, for you are worth it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.